Thanks for listening to the Lunch and Learn with Dr. Barry, here to help educate, motivate, and put you on the right path to take control of your health through weekly discussions on topics in the medical field, public health arena, and in your community. And now your host, Dr. Barry. Welcome to another episode of the Lunch Learn with Dr. Barry. I'm your host, Dr. Barry Pierre, your favorite board-certified internist, founder of drbarrypierre.com, as well as Pierre Medical Consulting, helping you empower yourself for better health with the number one podcast for patient advocacy. And so fitting that today we are going to be talking about health advocacy. And I have a special guest for you guys today, O.K. Inaya, who is the founder and CEO of Inaya Strategies a health policy consulting firm that provides advising, research support, policy analysis, project management, and legislative strategy for individuals and entities seeking measurable ways to influence policy on issues related to health equity, health disparities, social determinants of health, and health in all policies. He also helps entry-level and mid-career professionals find ways to maximize their career advancement aspirations by reviewing resumes, cover letters, facilitating interview preparation, and providing a roadmap for a successful transition from higher education into the workforce and entrepreneurship. OK was a Congressional Black Caucus Foundation Health Policy Fellow from 2014 to 2016. He worked three years with members of Congress on a wide range of issues, areas in the context of health, education, foreign policy, civil rights, voting rights, and advocacy. He holds a master's degree in public health from Chicago State University and a bachelor's of science degree in biology and biochemistry from Lewis University, Romanville, Illinois. He resides in Maryland and enjoys cooking, reading, and traveling. And really the most important thing, you guys, I've harped on it before, that yes, we can talk about being healthy and understanding taking medications and taking the right medications, being healthy is, you know, the way to go. But we have to understand that there are a lot of forces at hand that play a role in people being healthy. And I, and I know, especially as I find that a lot in physicians, right, where they don't like to talk about politics and uh, the effects of politics on the way we practice medicine, but it is extremely true. So I wanted to bring someone who's really on the ground floor, like actually they're working with people who are making these laws that are sometimes good and a lot of times not very good in your everyday order of health, right? So let's get ready for another amazing episode. Like always, if you have not had a chance, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Leave me a five-star review and let uh, OK know that he was such an amazing guest on the podcast today. You guys have a great and blessed day. This episode is brought to you by the Lunch and Learn Community Store, where we are living out the motto, empower yourself for better health. In the Lunch and Learn Community Store, you can get your favorite t-shirts, ebooks, as well as other related products by Dr. Barry. Head over to shop.drpiersblog.com and get a chance to get 10% off your first purchase by using the coupon code EMPOWER10. Again, shop.drpiersblog.com. Live out the motto, empower yourself for better health. And again, thank you, Lunch Learn community. You heard an amazing introduction on our today's guest, who I'm excited for to kind of, you know, bring a little light on health policy, which is, I know is a taboo topic that, you know, a lot of people don't like. It's not sexy that a lot of people like to talk about. But again, when you got people who are kind of in their field doing it, and I wanted to kind of make sure I brought that expert here. So, okay, first of all, thank you for coming to the episode of Lunch Learn Community. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to, and I say so your, your bio is absolutely, you know, fantastic. 
classic, right? But I always like to kind of, you know, start in the beginning, right? Like tell, tell the mm-hmm. community a little bit about yourselves in your own words. And then I want to, I want to rev up and I want to kind of talk about, you know, what were some of your goals and aspirations as you were going through your journey? Sure. So my background is in medicine, public health, health policy, politics, research, and teaching. I'm a former House and Senate staffer on Capitol Hill, and now I work at the Department of Health and Human Services, where I report to the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. And so I have a social justice background as a grassroots activist. I consider myself a scholar activist, and I bring the nuanced, you know, underground perspective to the policy space particularly as it relates to African-Americans and African-American men in particular. So enjoy talking about you know my experience, my journey, how I got to this point. I'm the oldest of six children. I have two brothers and three sisters. My parents are from Nigeria. I grew up on the South Side of Chicago and I moved to Maryland in 2014 to work as a staffer on Capitol Hill. And so I'm also getting a doctorate in public health uh, with a focus in health policy at the George Washington University Milken Institute School of Public Health, where I plan on further exploring the the intersections of race, gender, equity, health, and policy as it relates to the lived experiences of African-American men and boys over the life force. So that is kind of my background. I'm also an author, entrepreneur. I just released my first self-published book, late 2018, that also chronicles my life experience from childhood, high school, college, grad school, med school, Capitol Hill, and into, into author entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship. So I'm excited to share some more details about my experiences and hopefully it, it serves as an inspiration and as a way to help people kind of chart out their path to find purpose, to overcome adversity and to pursue destiny. I love it. And so six siblings, well, it's, it's part of six siblings. Are you the oldest? Are you the youngest? Well, where, where do you fall? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm the oldest of six children. I have wow. two brothers and three sisters. Yeah. And, that, and that's tough because you kind of have the, you're, you're the lead. You're <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, I have the, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a blessing uh, uh, and a challenge to be the pioneer, to be the first, you know, to kind of make the effort to lead by example. You know, the firstborn usually has a little bit more pressure put on them, you know, from parents. Well, you know, so. Speaking from an oldest sibling, I, I 100% understand. <laughs> yeah. So, mm-hmm. Now, when we, when we look at where OK is at today, right, when you are growing up, you know, the, the oldest kind of leading the charge, is this kind of where you envision yourself? Not necessarily. I actually was in the Nigerian culture, you know, we, there's this tendency to, you know, we are known to be high achievers, right? We, we value higher education, you know, we are very driven, very ambitious. And so my personal goal growing up was to become a medical doctor. And so, which is not entirely unusual, particularly within the context of the Nigerian culture, where it's, you know, it's either doctor, lawyer, engineer, you know, mm-hmm. professor, you know, something like that. So high, high, high level, that was my, like this, this is what we expected. Right, and exactly. The oldest, and, that, that, I'm pretty sure that carries an additional set of burden on top of the burden it carries just wanted to obtain those professions. Absolutely. So, you know, me having kind of to carry on the mantle, you know, of sorts, um, it definitely made the journey much more interesting and enriching. So, but I didn't, so maybe about five years ago, five or six years ago, I didn't envision what I'm doing right now on Capitol Hill, because again,
and I, I, I know I, I kind of grew up thinking that I'll be serving as a physician in terms of direct patient care. But what ended up happening was that it went from direct patient care to public health to now health policy um, on a much broader scale. And so that's kind of a possible uh, community. Right. And in full, full right. disclosure, Lynchland community, I have a public health uh, degree as well. I've talked about it in prior episodes that mm-hmm. I am 100% sure I'm a different physician because of the public uh-huh. degree. Because like, you could definitely correct, you know, add to it. Like I felt that as uh, just a general physician, yeah, it was great with the one-on-one, but I always found myself asking, well, if this person in front of me is dealing with this blood pressure, this diabetes, this cholesterol, what is that community dealing with? What are the community related problems that kind of put this person who I'm just happen to be taking care of in front of me? Right. And so and so what you're getting at is what's framed as the social determinants of health, where, you know, one's health outcomes or one's life outcomes can be determined by where you are born, live, you know, work, play, worship. And so, you know, all of those factors, you know, it's, it's beyond just the the patient, the patient position relationship. It's what are the what what is the social context? You know, what type of environment? You know, place matters. And so, what type of environment? You know, and what type of influences are in motion to inform or to impact the extent to which you're able to really live the best quality of life possible? And I, I definitely so first lunch and community. I want to kind of we're, we're going to give the 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 World Health Organization definition of health policy. But I want to ask, okay, like what is what does he feel health policy is to him, right? Because I think it's it's a, depending on who you talk to, it's a, you get a different kind of interpretation. So the World Health Organization yeah. says health policy refers to decisions, plans, and actions that are undertaken to achieve a specific healthcare goals within a society. A, an explicit health policy can achieve several things. It defines visions for the future, which in turn helps establish targets and points of reference for the short and medium term. It outlines priorities and the expected roles of different groups and it builds consensus and informs people. So that's the you know, that's the textbook definition of health policy. But uh, when you when you when you talk about health policy and you know, your expertise, like what does that like mean to you? Yeah. So you know, to me personally, there's an interplay of several factors, and I use the social justice framework as the backdrop or as the foundation that informs my work. And so for me, it's an interplay between power, politics, economics, and influence. And so it's it's a matter of the extent to which one is able to get to the decision-making table with data, research, and compelling stories to make a case to help change minds or to better inform whether it's uh, in the course of a conversation or in terms of policy proposals or uh, legislation at, at the local, state, and federal levels. And so, you know, all of those factors play into what you know, I believe uh, policy is and does. And so for me, in terms of health policy, so what I bring to bear is the health space and all of those nuances, particularly as it relates to people of color and how I can better drive the conversation around how to better influence and impact policies on behalf of people of color. Is that something that always kind of attracted you to it? And, and I, I want to talk because I, I know I know you kind of mentioned you, you were on path to be a physician and we'll, we'll talk about when did that divert. But then just the race and the ethnicity like behind health policy, was that something that was always kind of drew you to it? Or you just while you were going through that path, you just realized you were kind of magnetized in that area? Yeah. So I evolved into it. Uh, I come from from a lineage 
is and a legacy of scholar activists, of entrepreneurs, of ministers, of educators, teachers. Uh, and so, you know, just it's so it's in my blood to be uh, an advocate, to be someone that has a passion for speaking truth to power, to serving as a scholar. And yeah, so I hope you heard that. He's truth to power. That's that's powerful. I love it. Yeah. And so and so as I've lived and I and I have experiences, whether it's in college or in grad school or med school, wherever my passion for really putting voice and language to the issues and challenges that people of color face has, you know, has evolved and has and has strengthened. And as I have educated myself, as, as I have lived as a conscious black male in the society, I've been better able to inform, to influence, to impact, you know, to raise awareness around issues of race and ethnicity and cultural competency and you know, all of those things that really inform policy in some way, shape or form. And so I think the, the, the pivot point for me, I think, came in med school because while I was seeing patients, but I, at the same time, I just felt this burning desire to effect much broader change. And, you know, having seen patients of color treated differently, talked to differently, you know, just, you know, all of that just fueled my passion to say, okay, beyond the patient-physician encounter, what things can be done in terms of public health or in the policy space that can help to address these issues that I'm seeing play out, at, you know, on the ground. Now, if you ask, like, because I, I take care of patients in a hospital, I took care of patients in the outpatient clinic, and I think a lot of times the, the, the general person doesn't realize the impact. These policies that are there, that are around them, that are making decisions mm-hmm. for them, actually have on how how I take care of them in the hospital or how I take care of them in the outpatient, you know, space. It, do you find that conversation difficult to translate, like to really explain to a person like, no, 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 like what I'm doing here in D.C. like affects somebody in like California and Arkansas and Florida and New York, even though it's, you can't necessarily see it personally. Yeah. So that's something that I've come to better appreciate about the policymaking process, because, you know, if you want to define it in terms of. So, for example, I, I served on a Senate side. I worked on the Senate Health Education and uh, Labor and Pensions Committee and where I got a chance to really understand the various policy levers that can be pulled to effect some type of change, at least at the federal government level. And so what that entailed was as a staffer doing research to draft a memo or to help to draft a bill that includes language germane to people of color or to black women or to black men or to Hispanics. And so ensuring that you're able to include language in bills or in proposals or include language in a floor statement that that the member of Congress would read on the House or Senate floor. That's also an example of influencing policy. So, found yourself. In a, I'm sorry to interrupt. But have you ever found yourself if you were not in that room, maybe we get left out? Like if you're not in there, yeah. saying, hey, we need to like talk about the black man. Like, talk to, like if you, if do you think if you weren't there, like that wouldn't even come into fruition? Correct. And and and, and I live that every day because I can tell you now, even now in the meetings that I attend and these hearings and briefings on, on the Hill, literally, if I wasn't in the room at the table, the conversation would be different, right? Mm. And so and so, I find myself, you know, I live to give. I'm all about servant, servant leadership and 
lifting as I climb. And, and, and so for me, it's not just about me getting to the table, but how can I create a pipeline to ensure that other people of color who have the education, the uh, the passion to help to inform your colleagues who don't look like you or don't share your background? How can we create kind of a groundswell and you know really kind of build out a staffing a staffing infrastructure that will bring in people of color or bring in more nuanced diversity and inclusion and, and equity conversations? to help to draft this policy that affects the general public, right? So yes, you know, there were times where literally if I wasn't there in the room, some things wouldn't have happened. If I wasn't there in a room, some decisions might have been made differently. So while on one hand, your presence matters, but to, to take it further, you you being able to articulate in a compelling way, which is supported by data and stories, your cases, then it's, you know, it, it becomes much more challenging for very nuanced policy to be drafted and to get across the finish line. Wow. So, yeah. And, and you talk especially because you mentioned c- cultural competency. And I, I can tell you as uh, when, I, when I was a student, a med student, and we, we had to take that I think it was like a three week course. It wasn't, it wasn't long. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting there being like, uh, duh, like, of course you should do that. And I remember some of my classmates were like really enamored. Like this was really like the first time, like someone yeah. was saying like, oh, you know, it's actually not a good idea to talk this way or lead. Like, it, like in, and I think that's what sometimes gets lost on us, especially when you're in the space, when you're in the know like yourself, like, you know, like we should be there. But right. it's, it's almost surprising that like, if you don't actually speak up, people are going to be like, people aren't going to like pick up like, oh, actually, actually should include minorities and like, I actually should like actually look out for them. So uh, yeah, right. thank you for, you know, you know, carrying that light. Cause it, it's gotta be hard. Right. Cause I, I would assume that it's not a lot of black males doing what you're doing. Like I, I would, I would love to see what that room looks like when you go to a meeting and everybody else is there just to kind of be able to do that, that, you know, the quote unquote head count. Yep. Absolutely. You know, and, and, you know, you know, so let's say in a room full of about a hundred staffers on the, on the house or Senate side, for example, as far as you know, black males, you know, will be sprinkled. Maybe two or three, five max, uh, and then and and then there's usually a, a a slightly higher percentage of black women than black men. And oh, so I, I was going to ask that because I I wonder, like I see it, I see it in the school, but I was wondering, like I wonder if the, even in that space, the women much more represented, not as not as much as it should, but more than us, right. Yeah, you and, know. And let, let's let's all. talk. Let's talk a little bit about just kind of some of the the adversity that you had to face to even get to wh- where you're at today, and obviously still uh, up and growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, let's talk about you know because we talked about we were in medical school, right? But in end medical school, right? Like what were what what was the thoughts there? What was happening? What were and where? What were some things that you wish could have been different? Yeah. So over the course of a decade, I had studied and taken the medical college admissions test four times and then I applied to med school three times before finally getting into med school. And the last time that I took the MCAT was actually in a post prep program called MedPrep, which is Southern Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. And so I, I was able to get in and uh, in my cohort, I think the class size was seventy two in my in my cohort. And out of that seventy two, I think 
four of us, I think four black males and I think maybe two or three black females. I mean, so going, and so going to a predominantly white institution. And, and, and I just want to let you know, I went to Nova. It was about 200 okay. and we had three. So that, so his, wow. his ratio is not surprising, unfortunately. Right. And so, you know, just kind of having to work and study in that environment, right? And, and so you're studying while black and you are dealing with racial microaggressions. You're dealing with hostile classmates who aren't sharing information. You're dealing with passive aggressiveness. You're dealing with in the context of, of an environment that while I think the school did make sincere considered efforts to create a safe environment and, and as a welcoming environment as is possible, it's still, you know, at, you know, the nuance just kind of daily interactions, you know, made it much more of a challenge for, for me as a conscious black male to focus and to do well in the coursework and also to maintain sanity for that matter. And so having to work in, uh, in, in, in again, you know, I give the programs and the school credit, you know, for making an effort, but, you know, I, at the same time, if you go to any predominantly white institution, usually the one of the largest challenges is how do you best create the most welcoming, safe environment for anyone to attend that school? And then when you have the numbers, you know, kind of factor into it, it makes that much more difficult for you to really be able to focus and to perform well on the exams and, you know, pass the clerkships and, you know, pass the uh, steps, board exams and whatnot. So there's a lot there. It's, but, you know, fortunately for me, I guess, even Going, even getting into mid school, I knew that my vision was going to be a lot bigger than 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 just seeing patients as a physician. And so it went from yes, direct patient care, but then the pivot into public health, and, and then going from there. So it was a lot of it was it was a the support was there, but it wasn't enough for me to perform at my peak. So I actually ended up leaving med school, and I moved back home to recalibrate. It, it took about a year or so for me just to kind of recalibrate from the experience of, you know, constantly being questioned, my competence question, you know, just trying to get my identity back whole and just the self-care, the mental health, the emotional health. So, so just getting all of that back together in the back it took my right and, and, and then, then, and then, I want to tell you like this story like is is not an anomaly this story is one that many of us who are in a space that we're and to say minority is probably more of an exaggeration like it's like almost like a speck sometimes where we mm -hmm. don't even feel like we kind of belong because we're like again I, I was in the class of 200 plus and it was three of us right? and I would look right. around and like Wow. So, so right. I, and so this, that, this story, like when, when he tells this story, like I, like I just, I picture myself back at Nova. Mm -hmm. I picture myself having to take tests and having to answer questions, knowing that I, I was unfortunately the representative of the whole black male community when I answered a question, mm -hmm. right? right? Like if I got it wrong, like I let the whole community down, right? Like right. that was, that was, that's a burden that you have to face on top of what medical school is, which is one of the most burdensome things ever. So I, mm -hmm. I, I appreciate it uh, because you tell a story that is not only enlightening and true, but resonates to a lot of people like you I'm not, and I'm pretty sure you've probably talked to others who felt right in this ilk like like oh yeah he's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. like, he, like literally, okay. you could see me I just the whole time he's talking like mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Exactly. And so, you know, part of it too is having to work through imposter syndrome and, you know, as you mentioned, kind of questioning or doubting whether you belong. And, and so just kind of working through that. And so, you know, after I, I had moved back home to recalibrate, the question became, okay, well, what's next? And in my case, I, I was I was already considering getting, getting a master's in public health. And so I applied to a few programs in Chicago and I got into Chicago State University, which is is a minority serving institution, which was a phenomenal experience for me. And it helped me to, to heal and to become whole and to get my confidence back because I was surrounded by people that looked like me and faculty that looked like me and that affirmed me. And um, as an aside, a quick shout out to HBCUs, you know, definitely have love for them, you know. Oh, yeah. And so my dad actually taught at Coppin State University in Maryland very early on in his career. And so in fact, I remember, I think, maybe I was in first second grade I was I he brought me to to the campus you know and just just to kind of you know to expose me to the campus and I always remember that that time that I was walking around that campus and I, and that left indelible um, um, impression on me that still stands to this day and so once I kind of and so with with the graduate program I mean because of my previous training I, I, I just flew through the program I mean I, I, I was loving public health I found my stride in terms of health policy and social justice and you know that nexus and that further informed my eventual work in the intersections of social justice you know he, uh, health black men and boys and policy and so after I graduated from from Chicago State University, I was thinking, I'm like, okay, well, what's next? So is it a doctoral program? Is it a fellowship? You know, what's next? And so I have to go through a little process and trying to figure out, you know, get some clarity around my next move. And fortunately, I had some good mentors and advisors who were helpful in, in providing some clarity and some encouragement to, to me to continue to move forward. And so I applied, I taken, I had taken the GRE once and, and I got into Chicago State with that score. But then as far as the doctoral program uh, piece, I had, I actually took the, took the GRE, I think two or three more times before finally getting into the, to the program that I'm at now at GW. And I also applied to doctoral programs. I think it was three times between, I think, 2013 and 20. 17. Now, just prior to that, I had gotten into my fellowship, which is named the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation Health Policy Fellowship, which was where I was able to work a year on the House side in Congress and a year on the Senate side as a health staffer, health policy staffer. And so I went from my, my graduate degree in public health at Chicago State University to my two-year fellowship in Congress, which wrapped up in 2016. And then I made the pivot into the Department of Health and Human Services in 2016, which is where I'm at currently. And I just started my, my doctoral program last fall. And so this is the second semester of my, of, of my, of my doctoral program. And, and, and so this is where we are. I love it. What's a normal day for you right now? Like, especially you're working with the Department of Health. Like, what, what's a normal day? Are, are you, are, are you, again, mind you, I'm naive, right? I'm in South Florida, right? So I don't know what goes on in that D.C. I just assume everyone's like around the White House. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So, you know, for me, you know, obviously it's different for, for each person, but for me, it's my day usually is made up of meetings with colleagues and writing policies or helping to write policies, attending hearings and briefings, either in the House or the Senate, trying to prepare for, you know, policy decisions that might be coming down the road, you know, as it relates to some issue area. And so whether it's, you know, let's say the ACA, for example, or, or, if it's Medicare for all, or if it's the, the primary industry, there's a whole host of interests and, you know, kind of issue areas that, that one can tap into. And so for me right now, my current space is in the, in the, in the disaster preparedness space. And so anything that pertains to natural disasters and hurricanes, tornadoes, wildfires, Ebola, Zika, emerging threats, so anything that pertains to those types of uh, challenges, that is the current space that I work in. And so, again, part of what I bring to the table or the conversation is the social justice bent in terms of health equity and health disparities. And so how do we lift up the communities of color? How do we, how do we lift up the most vulnerable populations to ensure that they get the support, the resources that they need to recover when things happen, you know, whether it's a hurricane or, if, you know, if it's, you know, some of the threat, how do we ensure that people of color or communities of color are not left out of the conversation? Mm. And, I, and we appreciate you for, for sitting at that table. That's, that's definitely, mm-hmm. if, if you had to, and I know we kind of, if you had to, like if someone said, well, okay, what's like the most pressing issue right now from a health policy standpoint that I in South Florida, a little lowly old me should be worried about? Like, what would you say? Yeah. So I think, Cause I'm a physician, thinking right? I'm yeah. a physician right? So, you know, I, uh, I hear a lot about the Affordable Care Act. I hear a lot about exactly. they're going to cancel this. They may cancel that. Like, right. but sh- like, so, should I be scared? Like, what is, what is, what is, what are you, what's, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So I haven't studied the the demographics uh, in Florida in terms of whether you are a uh, a, a Medicaid expansion state, mm-hmm. but you know, certainly part of the strategy as a physician would be to make every effort to get involved at the local uh, state or federal levels as it relates to either the ACA or Medicare, Medicaid, like those issues are, are very important and salient. And especially now as we are approaching the 2020 uh, uh, you know, presidential elections mm-hmm. with, with Medicare for all being high on a list of priorities as it relates you know, to, to those who, who, who lean left, you know, that is definitely a, a high priority. And then kind of tacked yeah. onto that. You know, we heard that physicians, like he's, he's saying, physicians, healthcare workers, if you're in this field, like, like he said, you, you should should know. And uh, for those who lunch learning community in Florida, like we are not Medicaid expansion state because our governor is whatever. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. You know, and I, and I didn't want to assume again, you know, I'm in DC, but you know, I'm, I do have a good sense of nationwide kind of what states are Medicare, Medicaid friendly. And I know that, you know, in terms of politics I have, so I was following the races with Andrew Gillum and you just, just how, how that all panned out, right? And so certainly he has his hand on the pulse of national health politics, and and so I would definitely encourage those, especially again in the run up to 2020, to really get up to speed on 
the nuances of what the Medicare for All legislation will look like. Because even now, in, in fact, this morning, I saw several articles speaking to the fact that I think it was in Louisiana that a, a federal judge denied or is making a case for dismantling the ACA. Uh, and so there are states level efforts being made to dismantle, you know, the ACA. This has been going on since uh, March uh, 23rd of 2010 when the bill was signed into law by President Obama. And so we know the dozens of efforts that the right has made to dismantle it. And so again, if you lean left, if you are a progressive, then part of your responsibility is to ensure that you are up to speed on what's happening and that you're able to work closely and collaboratively with people that share your views and your values uh, in ways that would, would be able to move the needle to ensure that healthcare is protected and that it is a human right. So I love it. So people ask me all the time, Dr. Barry, like you podcast, you blog, you do videos, and you're a physician, like, like, how do you have the time? So I got to ask, like, with all of the amount of work mm-hmm. that you do, how did we get to, okay, the author? Like, tell us about that. I want, cause I want to talk about this book. I want to talk about the why. I want to talk about what was your influence? Who's it for? But let's, but let's get to that. How did, like, how did becoming, was that something you always wanted to do? Like, did you always have a book in you? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I and this part of what I write about in the book is that maybe over the past maybe seven to ten years, I would get just in passing and just like, you know, casual conversation as I lived life, as I navigated from one space to the next, I would kind of get some type of signal or some type of, you know, something, someone would, you know, would share something just kind of randomly to say, well, you know, you should write a book. You know, you, you know, you, your experiences, you know, would, would help a lot of people. And even when that was shared, you know, I didn't really pay any mind because I was focused on actually trying to get through med school and get through grad school and, you know, find a job. And, you know, so I wasn't in the, in the headspace to really kind of say, okay, yeah, this, it might be good to start to put pen to paper. No, it just kind of evolved. And so I think it had to have been uh, 2019, maybe 2016 ish around that time where while, while I was in the, I was in the Senate, I think I was like, okay, you know, my experiences, like my, my, my trials, my challenges getting into med school, trying to get into doctoral programs, you know, that it, it, it's important to document. And so I began to journal, actually, I think maybe it was in 2011 or so. And so my journal was helpful in terms of creating, having just kind of like a framework, or like an outline in, um, that, I, that I was able to, to uh, build out. And so by the time, so from my 2010, 2011 till, till now, in fact, I was able to leverage a lot of the content that I journaled daily into a format that helped me to really frame my experience in a way that was helpful. And so part of my interest and passion was to leave a legacy for generations to come and also to become an entrepreneur, right? So how do you turn your your pain into purpose and ultimately, you know, into profit, right? So, you know, taking your community. I hope you heard those three words, turning your pain into purpose. And then most importantly, 
It's a profit. Yeah, absolutely, because, you know, I believe, you know, that, that nothing happens by accident. And, you know, frankly, as a, as a man of faith, as a Christian, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, how can I leave the best, the most, the best impact possible? How can I make this world better than how I found it in some way, shape or form? And so that, those are things that really drove me and motivated me to be, to sit down to write the book. And so practically speaking, it took about 40 actual writing hours over the course of 90 days to write the book, just to just to do like a big like brain dump, just get everything out, you, you know, get the journal together and just just get everything together in one, you know, document. And then I hired a writing coach. I hired a business coach to also help me to kind of ensure that I was going about this whole writing publishing process the, the, the right way. So I'm a self-published author. I started writing it in December of 2017 and I finished the first draft in March and I think it was February of 2018. And then it took about four months to edit it to get a proofread. And, and then I launched it on my birthday last year, which is November 22nd. And then it became the question of, okay, taking that content now, right? And how do I best leverage and maximize the content in this book into multiple revenue streams? And so that's where I'm at right now is really kind of exploring the various ways in which I could take the content, how to get a job on Capitol Hill, how to get a job in the workforce, how to find your passions, your purpose, you know, just, just framing the, the, the content in a way that will be helpful and can be plugged into different areas and networks. Oh, I love it. And was your influence, because obviously the trials that you went through played a huge role in being able to put that pen to paper. Did you, did mm -hmm. you, delve in with a lot of experience even when you were on the hill even when you were like in the thick of things within government did that also like make the book as well yes yes so it, it is a very transparent read you know i include all of all of my experiences how i got you know into med school how i got into my doctoral program how i got to capital experiences on capitol hill as a conscious black capitol hill author author of entrepreneurship and it's a very transparent read it lays out the framework that i'm helping to drive conversations that covers a wide range of issue areas as it relates to mental health and well-being self-care the opioid epidemic the stem fields the school to prison pipeline health disparities health equity health and our policies, my time on Capitol Hill, like it's all in there. Yes. I oh, love it. That's first of all, that's absolutely amazing. And putting on my, you know, the arms, cause we're, we're both in that, that field from an entrepreneurial standpoint, cause I definitely can see where, you know, you, you have courses, whether you have, where you're speaking, right? Like, you know, cause I think mm -hmm. you're, you have a story that I think people should hear. Right. And mm -hmm. whether we're talking about high school students, college students, like, I mean, honestly, even professionals who really need to hear like, hey, like I'm here, I'm doing the work and this is how you can do the work with me. Absolutely. And, you know, I'll also plug the fact that I also talked about my experience in Nigeria, which 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 uh, also helped to inform my sense of identity and culture, you know, which uh, which helped me to get to this point as well. So I definitely have to give a shout out to my Igbo, you know, culture and, and my people, you know, and I, and I kind of draw a parallel between Nigeria and Black Panther as well in, in terms of, you know, living in a country that is ruled and ran by people of color and how so empowering that is. And, uh, and so I definitely want to kind of plug that as well. 
I love it. How can someone who is, you know, interested in working with you, interested in learning from you, obviously interested in getting this book, right? Like, let, let's, let's, mm-hmm. let's get this, let's get this, this promo going, right? Like, how can I get in touch yeah. with you? Let them know wherever you're at, where all your social media outlets, web, yeah, give them the deets. Absolutely. So my website, so I'm, I'm also a consultant, in, in, which is part of my business model. My website is Enya Strategies, which is spelled E, and it's a Nancy Y-I-A strategies.com. That's my website where you can find my book. If you want a personal signed copy, you can go to my website and I will ship you out a personal signed copy. You can also find my book on Amazon and Kindle. I've been going on book. So I've been on this whole book tour since I launched it you know, last fall. So almost every weekend I'm somewhere, you know, doing a book signing somewhere. As far as social media, my Instagram is Enya Strategies. My Twitter also is Enya Strategies. I'm on LinkedIn as my name is O-K-E-Y. Last name is Enya, E-N-Y-I-A. It's my Facebook account. Um, (laughs) You can also also find me on YouTube as my name, O-K-E-N-Y-A. That's O-K-E-Y-E-N-Y-I-A. Also on Periscope as and your strategies and what else? I think that covers the social media. So IG, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Periscope, YouTube, website, my email list. If you go to my website, please join my email list, andyourstrategies.com. I'm in the process of actually creating an online course that is focused on creating a career roadmap for individuals who are who are challenged with trying to pivot from, let's say, college to grad school or from, or from grad school to the workforce. And so I help people to successfully transition from one point to the next by creating a roadmap for them to, to navigate throughout the workforce in that fashion. So I can talk about how to network, how, how to find mentors how to negotiate salary, soft skills, email etiquette, phone etiquette, how to search for jobs in government or elsewhere, how to find purpose and destiny and, you know, passions and get clarity around your purpose. You know, that that's that's really big for me. So that's the online course that I'm creating. I'm hoping to launch it very soon. And I'm excited about what's ahead. I love it. And don't worry, Lunch Night Community, if you're driving, listening to that work, all of those links will be in the show notes. So we'll make sure... You get a chance. I'm also going to be giving away a Kindle version of his book as well, too, because um, I, I definitely think this is person that you need. Because, again, I've been I've been following him for about, I think, almost like a year or so on LinkedIn. And when I first started, I was like, oh, OK, this is a person I'm like, I'm, I'm going to have to keep kind of close because I, I, when you see people working and doing work. They don't even have to say it. You just, they're, they're so busy working. You could just notice like, oh, wow, this person's actually putting some moves in. And so he was definitely someone who like, I was ecstatic about getting on the show to kind of talk to you guys, because I know, again, it, I know health policy, I know politics isn't sexy, but it is extremely important. I promise you that medication that you're picking up at your local pharmacy, there's some policy that's made it to price that it is at that point, right? So don't think that you are immune and in this bubble that some type of policy does not affect what you're doing here in your little community. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so important to to get to a place where you're able to frame issues and challenges and policies within the context of the 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 person that lives, you know, day to day. So how do you best connect the dots? And I think in in, in terms of how to find relevancy with what's going on at at the federal level with what's going on at the state level and then what's happening locally. You know, 
all politics is local, you know, power, influence, economics, education, like all of those nuances. And so part of it for me is helping to drive the conversation and create the narrative that makes the what is oftentimes the amorphous policymaking process relevant and germane and makes sense and connected. Right. I love it. And and before I let you go, I always ask, I always ask this question. How can even though, how can what you do empower others to take better control of their health? Yeah. So, you know, I, I always say that change starts with you. And I think being being willing to change, which is very difficult at times, you know, us being human and just, you know, living. I think having a heart to serve and being willing to seek out supports and help. And so, for example, for me, especially now, it's a question of, or it's a strategy of, of normalizing self-care. So I go see a black male psychologist um, bi-weekly. I'm in a gym weekly. As I mentioned earlier, I'm a Christian, so I go to church weekly. You know, I, I eat well, at least try to. So, and so because I've been exposed to this lifestyle, to these values, I'm better able to, and I'm blessed to be able to share my experiences in a transparent way that hopefully will encourage you to make some positive changes. And so that is also part of what drove me to write the book to say, you know, this is what I, what, what I've had to go through personally. And these are the things that, that I did or that have helped me to get to where I am today, where I am hopefully inspiring people and I'm helping to change people's lives based upon, you know, my story. So that that is what drives me. And, and my hope is that the opportunity that, that you're made available to me on your podcast and to other radio you know, interviews and TV interviews and speaking engagements, that this is one 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 way in which I am hope, hopefully leaving a legacy and making a strong impact. So I, I love it. I love it. Again, Lunch Learn Community, amazing guests always. Uh, thank you uh, for tuning in and we'll see you guys next week. Thank you for getting to the end of the show. I am your host, Dr. Barry Pierre, host of the Lunch Learn with Dr. Barry. And this is another amazing episode that we like to bring to you week after week on betterment of empowering yourself for better health today if you have not had a chance please go ahead and subscribe to the show if this is your first time listening if you already listen and you've already subscribed make sure to leave me a five-star review because your support is absolutely important in keeping the show moving as it is and if you have not had a chance and you want to check out today's show notes always head over to lunchlearnpod.com that is lunch learn pod all in one word.com and you can get the access to my show notes for every single episode but especially the one you just listened to and i'm gonna see you guys next week you guys be blessed bye